It's about 10.30 now. I sit down and plunge in. When I start making typos, I know I'm getting tired. That's four hours or so. I've hit the point of diminishing returns. I wrap for the day. Copy whatever I've done to disc and stash the disc to the glove compartment of my truck in case there's a fire and I have to run for it. I power down. It's 3, 3.30. The office is closed. How many pages have I produced? I don't care. Are they any good? I don't even think about it. All that matters is I've put in my time and hit it with all I've got. All that counts is that for this day, for this session, I have overcome resistance. Welcome to So-Called Discoveries, where we discuss stories, knowledge, and insights from somewhere and try to learn something. My name is Anthony Ozzie. What you just heard was a passage from the subject of today's episode, the book The War of Art, subtitle Break Through the Blocks and Win Your Inner Creative Battles. It was written by Stephen Pressfield and published in 2002. On the back of the book, it starts with a quote from the author, and it says, Creative work is a gift to the world and every being in it. Don't cheat us of your contribution. Give us what you've got. It then says, do you, and it lists a few bullets, dream about writing the great American novel, regret not finishing your paintings, poems, or screenplays, want to start a business or charity, wish you could start dieting or exercising today, hope to run a marathon someday. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you need the war of art. In this powerful, straight-from-the-hip examination of the internal obstacles to success, best-selling author Stephen Pressfield shows readers how to identify, defeat, and unlock the inner barriers to creativity. The War of Art is an inspirational, funny, well-aimed kick-in-the-pants guaranteed to galvanize every would-be artist, visionary, or entrepreneur. Yeah. Then there's a couple quotes from... People who I admittedly don't know. Jay McInerney says, Amazingly cogent and smart on the psychology of creation. And Robert McKee says, As I closed the war of art, I felt a surge of positive calm. I now know I can win this war. And if I can, so can you. So the book is really mostly about defining and understanding how to combat resistance towards the, the things that you personally feel called towards that are important to you that you want to work on or, or improve or, or change about your life or produce or whatever it is and you feel resistance and you struggle to complete those things so that's that's really who the book is intended for more specifically it's written from the perspective of an author he's a, a, a fiction author as well as a nonfiction author also written for writers and authors but really written for what he calls artists generally he also makes a point to state that the concepts discussed in, in this book apply to everyone, whether you personally consider yourself an artist or not. We all feel resistance. We all feel callings. We all have things that are unique about us. And I hope that in discussion of this book, this podcast is able to provide value to anyone who listens, whether or not you consider yourself an artist. 
The book is divided into three parts. Uh, actually, I should say three books, because he, he calls them book one, book two, and book three. In discussion of the War of Art, I am going to do one episode per each of these parts. So this episode is book one, or part one. The next episode will be book two, and the one after that will be book three. One of the biggest concepts that Pressfield discusses and fleshes out in the War of Art is that of resistance, and it is the focus of today's episode. Another important concept in the War of Art is the muse, which is one that we won't really dive into today. That's mostly in book three of the War of Art. But he believes heavily in the muse and in the concept of the muse when it comes to inspiration and and artists and and stuff like that. He has studied much of Greek history and the the origins of, of concepts and ideas like the muse. And he very much has this, as far as I can tell, at least from, from my interpretation of his reading, this mystical view of things like the muse and things like creativity and where ideas come from and, and stuff like that. And this is evident in, in some of the ways that he writes. One of the things that I find interesting is whenever he discusses resistance throughout the books, he always writes it with a capital R. And to me, that means that he's not just saying the word resistance as you would find in the English dictionary. He's discussing a concept and there's a certain amount of mysticness and just nature and godliness that he weaves within his writing. And and he does say at one point in the book, he does believe in God. And that of course shapes his view. But this book is how he has struggled and dealt with resistance in particular and his creative blocks and his philosophy when it comes to that stuff and how he has essentially overcome it and gone beyond resistance. I want to take a moment to just compare a couple things from this book, The War of Art, to the book that was discussed in episodes two and three, The Effective Executive. Don't worry, if you haven't listened to episodes two and three, you do not have to listen to them in order to listen to this episode first, but I'm just going to make a quick comparison. In that book, we referred largely to executives. And we made it a point to understand that while the concepts in that book were written and directed with business people and executives in mind, it applies generally to all of us as individuals. Well, it's something similar with this book where we said the book is intended and written for artists, but the concepts discussed in the book as it relates to artists also relate generally to all of us as individuals. So that's one common similarity and and one that I hope to be a common thread through many episodes of so-called discoveries. Another thing I'll point out in relation to the last book we discussed, The Effective Executive, that book was very concrete, very practical. It was all business, no nonsense. Not to say that it was a dry read or anything like that. It was it was a good read, but it was very straightforward. This book, like I said, has certain elements of mysticism and, and godliness and things like praying for the muse and these are these are the concepts that Stephen Pressfield believes in and and if you're coming from a perspective where you're not inclined to pay much attention or respect or or give much legitimacy to things like this or writings like this you might be initially turned off if you started to read this book but i would advise you to try and move past it and if you really can't handle the fact that some of his writing might seem a little bit mystical or or some people might call it woo-woo or whatever. If you really can't handle it, then my best advice is just assume that it's metaphor. Just assume that he's speaking in metaphor and that there's some sort of deeper meaning that you're supposed to understand behind the metaphor. Because I think that his style of writing is 
actually quite effective for what he's trying to do with this book. For me, this book is highly important. I read it before I ever even thought about starting this podcast, and I reread it in preparation for it. And this book is highly important to me and has been highly beneficial to me. It's one of those things where I can pick it up at a random time and flip to any page and just start reading, and I'm going to get something awesome, something valuable, something beneficial, something relatable. And a lot of that also has to do with the structure of the way that the book is written. It's not written with long chapters. The chapters are actually quite short, no more than two to three pages in most cases. And in many cases, it's even less than a page. Often you'll have a chapter that is a single paragraph. They are very specifically named and very simply written. And some of the sentences in this book are just, they're so impressive. They're funny and they're profound and they sometimes they'll just like knock you back for a second. I'm laughing and then thinking about the deepness of life. <laughs> and he just, uh, he's an excellent writer. And admittedly, I have not read any of his other books. This is the only book of his that I have read, but he has written quite a lot of them. He was born on September 1st, 1943. His first fiction novel was The Legend of Bagger Vance, which was published in 1995. Another one of his well-known novels is Gates of Fire. This is about the Spartans and the Battle of Thermopylae. This book is actually taught at some United States military schools, including West Point, the U.S. Naval Academy, and the Marine Corps Basic School. And again, it's fiction. It's a novel. It's historical fiction about the Spartans and the Battle of Thermopylae. The last thing I want to do before we move on to discussing the book in particular is read a little bit from the author Stephen Pressfield's website. It's stephenpressfield.com. I will link to it in the show notes. He says, I wrote for 27 years before I got my first novel published. During that time, I worked 21 different jobs in 11 states. I taught school, drove tractor trailers, I worked in advertising and as a screenwriter in Hollywood. I worked on offshore oil rigs, I picked fruit as a migrant worker. He did a bunch of stuff. He also says on his website that the war of art is not about being a genius. It's about the work. It's about understanding the work. He says we cannot control the level of talent we've been given. We have no control over the nature of our gift. What we can control is our self-motivation, our self-discipline, our self-validation, and our self-reinforcement. We can control how hard and how smart we work. I say these things just so you have a little bit of context and background going into the book about Stephen Pressfield. Oh, I should also, I meant to mention, I'll just say it now. He was also uh, a Marine. I think he joined the Marines in, I believe it was 1966. So he's an author, an artist, all those other strange jobs that I mentioned, and a Marine. Now, we'll spend the bulk of the remainder of this episode discussing the actual writing within The War of Art. Towards the start of the book, Pressfield explains that most of us have two lives. It's the life that we live and the unlived life within us. That's a big part of his premise. And that the thing that stands between the life that we live and the unlived life within us is resistance. And he calls resistance the most toxic force on the planet. And here's an example of one of his funny sentences. It is the root of more unhappiness than poverty, disease, and erectile dysfunction. Woo! Calling it out. And yielding to resistance deforms our spirit. 
he says that we each have our own unique genius. And he says that genius is a Latin word and that the Romans used it to denote the meaning of inner spirit. And that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about somebody who is of insanely high degree of intelligence. That's the meaning that he's assigning with genius. It's your own inner spirit, your own inner uniqueness. And he says that we each have that and that resistance is a shadow of that genius. And he also claims that we each have a calling that is ours. It's our own. And we know what it is. No one has to tell us what it is. We know innately what our calling is. So book one of The War of Art is titled Resistance, Defining the Enemy. He labels resistance as the enemy, and the subject of book one is defining what is resistance. He opens each of the three books of The War of Art with a quote. And the quote to open this one, Resistance, Defining the Enemy, is from the Dalai Lama. And that quote is, The enemy is a very good teacher. So we have to assume that we have much to learn from resistance. So let's find out. When it comes down to it, he says that acts that are most common to elicit resistance are those that reject immediate gratification in favor of long-term growth, health, or integrity. In other words, he says that any act that derives from our higher nature instead of our lower one. And he says that the feeling of resistance can only be felt and experienced. can't really be seen. It's something that is felt from within. And it repels and distracts us and prevents us from the important work that we really, really need to be doing. And again, it's internal. It seems to come from external sources at times, but it arises from within. It's self-generated and self-perpetuated. And it's also a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a clever chameleon. He says that it can tell you anything and assume any form in order to deceive you, whatever you need to hear. It could even be something that's objectively good. I know I have examples of this where if there's something that I really want to be working on, that I'm procrastinating, that I'm putting off, all of a sudden there's a bunch of other things that I can do that are objectively good things. Maybe doing the dishes or washing the car or going for a run or reorganizing the cabinets or whatever it is, things that are objectively good, positive things. But all of a sudden now I want to do those things instead of the important work that I really have to do. That is a form of resistance. He says that resistance has no conscience. This is getting a little bit into the that mystical side of things that I was saying. He's assigning characteristics to resistance, saying that it has no conscience and that it's always lying and it just is always just full of crap, basically. And he says that if you take resistance at its word, then you deserve everything that you get. So basically, he's, he's defining resistance as this enemy, this evil character from within that is trying to prevent you from achieving your calling and from taking the actions and doing the important work that you know that you need to do. And he says that this is resistance's nature. It's all it knows is this attack mode. This is all it knows how to do, and this is all that it's meant to do. It's completely impersonal and objective. It doesn't care. It's completely indifferent, like the laws of the universe, basically, he says. And we have to keep this in mind and remember it when we're combating it and as we act against it. One of the ways that we can learn from this enemy, that we can learn from resistance, is by understanding that we can use it as a compass. He says resistance is like a true north when it comes to any calling or action. We should understand that the thing that we feel the greatest resistance toward is the thing that we most need to do. Pressfield says the more resistance we feel towards pursuing something, the more important 
that that call or action is to our soul's evolution. This is such an important idea on its own. The thing that you feel the most resistance towards is the thing that you most need to focus on. It's the thing that you most need to do. Use resistance towards your benefit. Use it as a compass. Understand the things that are most important that need to be done based off of how much resistance you feel towards doing them. Everyone experiences resistance. Pressfield explains that it's highly tied to fear. And fear never goes away. And remember that Pressfield is both a Marine and an artist when I say this next line from the book, which is that the warrior and the artist live by the same code of necessity, which dictates that the battle must be fought anew every day. Resistance is universal. It never goes away. We always have to deal with it. And he says, it aims to kill. It's not trying to wound you. Its goal is to get you to never even get remotely close to doing the thing that you really want to do. It is an internal force that manifests itself in different ways. And it is fueled by fear. It has no strength on its own. It is fueled by our fear of it. That's where it gets its strength from. And Pressfield says that if we master that fear, we conquer resistance. Another important attribute of resistance that is discussed is it is most powerful when we're getting towards the end, towards the finish line. When the finish is in sight, resistance panics. And that's when it hits you with everything it's got, every possible manifestation it can think of. In a clear but small example of this, one that I know I can relate to, I think of an intense run. Let's say I know I want to run a particular distance, or I say I'm going to run for a particular amount of time, or whatever it is, at a particular pace. I have that set in my mind to say, this is what I'm going to do. As I'm running, I might even be feeling great for like the vast majority of it. But then once I get towards the end of that run, maybe that last 10% push, that final push of the run, right where it's about to end and I'm about to go into a cool down period, right then it starts to get disproportionately harder. <laughs> like it shouldn't be that much harder at the last end. But there's something once you start getting towards the end where it's, oh, you're almost done. And then your body starts to feel like it can, it can relax and your brain starts to play tricks. And it's like, oh, well, you already got most of the workout, already got pretty much all the benefit. How much more benefit are you going to get from that last final push? You can ease up a little bit. You can slow down. You can take a break and you can stop. Just walk the rest of the way. It's fine. You ran really hard today. You can take a break. Your legs are tired, you know. Hey, you got to be careful. You might injure your knees. You've put a lot of pressure on them today. Your ankles are feeling a little wobbly, a little weak there. You got to calm down. Hey, have you even drank water? Have you even drank water today, man? Are you dehydrated? You shouldn't push as hard. Oh, your heart's beating really fast. Ooh, you got to relax. You got to be careful. All these little things, all these little games, all these little reasons, all these little arguments, these little things that come in. And that's just an example from one run, one particular act. It gets into your head and it tells you all of the things that you need to hear. And it might even make sense in many cases. It's trying to get you to not do the thing that you need to do. When it comes down to it, resistance is self-sabotage. By definition, by meaning, it is self-sabotage. It is an internal force. That said, we need to guard against 
sources of resistance, manifestations of resistance in the form of others as well. Like we said, resistance is universal. Everyone deals with it. And other people might be struggling with their own battles with resistance. And if they see you beginning to overcome yours, they may begin to think if they can overcome their resistance, if they can beat their demons and, and go after the things that are important to them, then why can't I? What about what I'm doing? And sometimes they may not sit well with people and they may express that in different ways. Then the best thing that somebody can do for another person is to serve as an example and perhaps an inspiration. The most common manifestation of resistance is procrastination. And man, do I know procrastination. I am a huge procrastinator. And Pressfield says it's the most common because it's the easiest for us to rationalize. Because we don't tell ourselves, I'm not never going to do this thing that's important to me. I'm just going to start tomorrow. I'm just not going to do it right now. I'm going to start tomorrow. For sure, I'll do it tomorrow. For sure. It can become a real problem if procrastination becomes a habit. Because then what happens is instead of putting things off until tomorrow, you end up putting off your entire life until you die. Here's a couple very powerful sentences after discussing procrastination. It says, never forget, this very moment we can change our lives. There was never a moment, and never will be, when we are without the power to alter our destiny. It's a very powerful sentence for me, at least. Always remembering that saying I'll start tomorrow at any moment can be changed into I'll start right now. Resistance can also manifest in other forms, including sex, drugs, shopping, TV, gossip, alcohol, and consumption of unhealthy foods. None of these things are necessarily inherently bad, or not all of them are manifestations of resistance, but it's important to understand that resistance can manifest in any of these things. And we need to try and be conscious and aware of what it actually is that we're doing and what it is that we're seeking. Another form of resistance is trouble. Whatever getting into trouble means for you and your life personally. Again, this doesn't mean anyone who gets into trouble or gets into some sort of hardship is experiencing some manifestation of resistance. But sometimes if there is a calling, if there are things that are highly important to us, for us to do, for us to focus on, sometimes as a form of resistance to keep us from doing those things, we may manifest some sort of trouble in our life or identify some sort of trouble in our life that is blocking us from doing that thing. So we need to understand that trouble prevents us from doing our work and not tolerate it and to banish the sources of it from our lives. We need to harness any urges for trouble and transform it into actually doing the work. Similarly to trouble, he says resistance can come in the form of self-dramatization. He has this sentence that made me laugh out loud that says, Why put in years of work designing a new software interface when you can get just as much attention by bringing home a boyfriend with a prison record? <laughs> and he goes on to say that some dynamics, you know, fi family dynamics or otherwise, might have a culture of self-dramatization. Pressfield even goes as far as to say that self-medication and depression and anxiety can be forms of resistance. While they can certainly have very real sources as well he says they can also be a form of resistance in a way to 
what he says, blot out our soul's call. He then goes on to explain how victimhood in general can be a form of resistance. And the idea that having some sort of a condition somehow increases the significance of one's existence. And he says the condition itself can almost become a work of art. And in the end, he calls victimhood seeking gratification through the manipulation of others rather than through your own honest work and through your own contribution. And he says that it's the antithesis of doing your work. Pressfield explains that he felt immense resistance in writing this book. He said that resistance manifested itself in the argument that he was a fiction writer, not a nonfiction writer. And this was his first nonfiction book, by the way, which came out in 2002. And at that time, resistance was telling him that he had no business exposing these concepts of resistance literally, and that he should incorporate them metaphorically into some sort of a novel, because he had written many novels before. He makes the point that this is, what a sophisticated argument resistance made to him. This makes sense. And it's kind of convincing. It's telling him, you're a fiction writer. You've written a lot of fiction novels. You shouldn't be writing literally. You should, it's not, it didn't even say don't do the work. It said, do the work a different way, right? Even though he knew that it was important to write it this way. So what resistance had in mind was that maybe he would write some story about war where maybe the principles of resistance would be expressed based off of how the warrior feels or the fear that a warrior feels before going into battle or something like that. He says resistance also told him that he shouldn't be trying to put himself in a position where he's instructing or teaching or trying to purvey wisdom and that doing such a thing was vain and egotistical and maybe even corrupting and that it was just not a good thing to do. And all of these things scared him because they made sense because resistance was able to use logic and reasoning to tell him what he needed to hear to not do the work. He says what finally convinced him was that he was so unhappy not going ahead with this idea as it was. And that he began developing symptoms. And that as soon as he sat down and began writing this book this way, he was okay. When we feel resistance, it feels like unhappiness. Like a misery and boredom and restlessness. And like we can't ever be satisfied and that there's some vague guilt and disgust but you don't really know what to do about it if it's not addressed if it's not alleviated it can become unendurable many people turn to vices the cure to the restlessness the cure to the resistance is doing our work doing the important work Resistance can also spawn the criticism of others. If you are criticizing others, Pressfield says you are probably doing so out of resistance. You are seeing how others are living, and they're beginning to live authentically for them. And it makes you uncomfortable or unsettled if you have not begun to do that yourself. And he says that individuals who are realized in their own lives almost never criticize other people. And we already mentioned that resistance and fear are linked. And Pressfield says that fear is an indicator that tells us what we have to do. 
the more scary something is to us, the more afraid we are of something, some calling, the more we know that we have to do that thing. The experience of resistance is an experience of fear. Along with fear, resistance is tied with love. And he says that resistance and love are directly proportional, meaning the more resistance, the more important something is to us, meaning the more that we love it and the more gratification we'll feel when we finally do it. And he points out that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Resistance is also related to isolation. As people, we are all afraid of being alone. We are more comfortable with the tribe. That's how we evolved. Pursuing your calling often feels like a lonely act because you are doing something that is unique to you and your own experience. Yet Pressfield says, get ready for some of the mystic stuff, we are never alone. The muse guides us and demands of us an act of courage to call forth a deeper part of ourselves, the part of the individual that creates. He says one thing that's common among artists and children at play is that they are not aware of the time or the fact that they are in solitude while they're chasing their vision. Pressfield says he is not alone when he is writing. He is in the book. He is with the characters. He's thinking of the reader, the audience, the self. And he says that it's often more vivid and interesting than the real people in his life, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. A book requires you to leave the real world and engage with it for some sustained period of time. It kind of has to be that way. But even in a nonfiction book, he's thinking of the reader and he's hoping to impart some wisdom and some inspiration. Some of that wisdom is related to the idea of healing. He discusses a concept that he says is problematic, which is that one must complete healing before they are ready to do their work. Really, you can think of healing as anything. It's the idea that there's something that needs to be done before you're ready to do the calling, before you're ready to act and do the work. There's some state you need to be in, some change, some evolution, some better circumstance, whatever it is. There's something that needs to happen or change before you do the work. That thinking is problematic and a form of resistance. And he says, the part of you that creates, which we referenced earlier, is not the part that needs healing. The part that needs healing is the personal life. That has nothing to do with the important work, with the calling, with what needs to be done. The part that creates can't be touched by the personal life. He then goes on to posit the idea that what better way of healing is there than that of finding self-sovereignty? He tells a personal story of himself as a young author in New York, making $20 a night, driving a cab, running away from his work, feeling resistance. And he said he eventually hits some sort of a bottom in terms of his resistance and his just dissatisfaction and unhappiness and dread. And he digs out his old typewriter, dusts it off, and the whole time is just dreading it, saying this is pointless, it's going to suck. And he sits down and he forces himself to write for about two hours. And it was awful. He said he threw it away as soon as he was done with it. But that it was enough. That was what he needed to do that night. He got up, he's in his apartment, and he notices about 10 days worth of dishes that have just been piling up in the sink. 
And somehow he has some extra energy. So he goes and just decides to wash them all. And at some point throughout the process, he says that he realizes the warm water feels very nice on his hands. And he's just plugging away and he's just washing all the dishes. Then he realizes that he's whistling. And all of a sudden he realizes that he's turned a corner and he's going to be all right. And that, no, he hadn't written anything good. And he says that he he wouldn't write anything good for years, but that after years of running from it, finally sitting down and finally doing the work, he knew he was going to be okay. And he knew that was all he needed. And that was the step that he needed to take. Like we said earlier, resistance forms arguments and uses logic and reasoning and tells you exactly what you need to hear in order to succumb. And it's because of this that Pressfield says resistance is right-hand man is rationalization. Rationalization keeps us from feeling shame by allowing us to not confront the fact that we are not doing our work out of fear. We run that back. We said resistance keeps us from going after our calling largely out of fear. Rationalization keeps us from addressing the fact that we are not going after our calling out of fear. It does this by getting us to lie to ourselves. But an important part of lying to yourself is believing it. So it gets us to lie to ourselves, and it gets us to believe it with rationalization and logic and reasoning and argument. So resistance is fear, but it doesn't want us to clearly see that it is fear. It doesn't want us to perceive that it is fear blocking us from going after our calling. Because if we saw it, if we clearly understood that our own fear was the thing that was preventing us from acting, we might feel shame as a result of that. And that shame might drive us to act in the face of fear. To avoid this, resistance uses rationalization. It presents us with plausible, logical reasons as to why we should not be doing the work. But resistance can be beaten. We've spent much of this episode defining what resistance is. How does it manifest? What does it look like in our lives? But how can we defeat it? It can sometimes seem insurmountable. And here's another funny sentence from Stephen Pressfield. Defeating resistance is like giving birth. (laughs) It seems absolutely impossible until you remember that women have been pulling it off successfully with support and without for 50 million years. So, yes, resistance can be beaten. We all experience it and we can all defeat it. And doing so is the subject of the next book in The War of Art. That is book two, Combating Resistance, Turning Pro. And that is the subject of the next episode of this podcast, So-Called Discoveries. Be sure to tune in there if you want to learn how to defeat resistance. We have wrapped up our discussion of book one of The War of Art, which was all about resistance, defining the enemy. In terms of our podcast's discussion on the book, The War of Art, this has been part one of three. If you are enjoying this content and these episodes, you can leave the podcast a review and a rating of up to five stars on Apple or Spotify. You can also use the link in the show notes to get in touch and connect if you are inclined to do so either through email on social media. And another thing that you can do is to tell your friends about this podcast. That is the best way that we can spread the word. Lastly, in the show notes, there is a link to purchase 
the book, The War of Art, on Amazon. Also in the show notes is a link to Stephen Pressfield's website. That is stephenpressfield.com. He has a lot of resources and information on his website. It's not just a list of his books. And he has some tools and resources for writers and artists as well. So if you're interested, go ahead and check out his website. Thank you very much for listening. Remember, the next episode is also on The War of Art, book two, Combating Resistance and Turning Pro. I hope this has been helpful, and I hope that you've learned something. Thank you. Bye.